Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, New York Democrats approve the new congressional maps amid debate over the process. Republicans criticize the politically charged process, but now they said they do not expect to fight the outcome in court. We'll have the latest on the maps from Philip Pantuso at the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau. Plus, it's Friday. Sullivan County Government Communications Director Dan Hoost is here, fresh from his visit to New York City and Google headquarters and their AI conference. We'll tell you why. And Catskill Artspace new exhibition of new work from Hovey Brock, Daniela Dooling, and Valerie Haggerty. Today, we talked to Valerie Haggerty, Haggerty, who makes paintings, sculptures, and installations that explore the issues of memory, place, and history. Plus, more arts events in March from Barry Plaxon at Canvas. First, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Health authorities in Gaza say more than 100 Palestinians were killed yesterday in a mass casualty incident. People seeking food rushed trucks with relief aid. Gaza officials say Israeli troops fired into the crowd. Israelis say the troops fired to defend themselves. NPR's Jane Araf says images show a chaotic scene. You can see from satellite images released or possibly drone images released by the Israeli military, people completely overwhelming trucks. There's so little food reaching Gaza. It just speaks to the desperation of people who have no other way of reaching their children, of feeding their children. It's also worth noting that the Israeli military said the trucks were operated by private contractors as part of an aid operation that it has been over. NPR's Jane Araf reporting. Former President Donald Trump is expected to be in a Florida courtroom today where he faces criminal charges of withholding and concealing classified and top-secret documents. NPR's Greg Allen reports the federal judge hearing the case will decide whether it will begin in May, as currently scheduled. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, has pushed back previous deadlines and is considering scheduling a hearing to allow Trump's lawyers to argue that the prosecution by special counsel Jack Smith is politically motivated. The lawyers also are seeking to have the case dismissed because of presidential immunity, a claim now scheduled for arguments in the Supreme Court. The special counsel wants Judge Cannon to dismiss those claims and a motion by Trump to disclose the names of potential witnesses before they testify. Prosecutors say disclosing the names would subject them to potential threats, intimidation, and harassment. With all this, legal experts say there's a good chance the trial will be postponed. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Officials in Texas say the enormous wildfire in the state's panhandle has not grown in the past 24 hours. It's still the biggest fire in Texas's recorded history, burning nearly 1,700 square miles. It has killed two people. Stocks opened mixed this morning after hitting record highs on Thursday. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped about 110 points in early trading. Both the S&P 500 index and the Nasdaq closed at all-time highs on Thursday, fueled by investors' excitement over artificial intelligence. That same excitement's boosting demand for Dell computer servers. Dell stock opened higher this morning after the company reported better-than-expected sales and profits. Stock in New York Community Bank Corp. fell after the bank ousted its longtime CEO and said it's delaying its annual report. New York Community Bank absorbed the assets of Signature Bank last year after that lender failed. As the weather warms up, Americans are driving more and the price of gasoline is climbing. AAA reports the average price of regular gas is now three thirty-three a gallon, up eighteen cents from a month ago, and just three cents less than this time last year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. Thousands of people turned out in Moscow today for the funeral of late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He's now been buried. Scores of Russian security officers were deployed at the church where his funeral was held and at the cemetery. The Biden administration blames Russian President Vladimir Putin for Navalny's death, and the White House has imposed new sanctions on more than 500 targets linked to his death and the war in Ukraine. The Environmental Protection Agency will delay strict new emission limits on existing natural gas-fired power plants. 
NPR's Jeff Brady explains the agency still plans to put new limits on existing coal plants and new gas ones. A key part of the Biden administration's climate plans is to limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted from fossil fuel power plants. Last year, the EPA proposed rules that would require coal plant owners to capture 90 percent of the carbon dioxide from their smokestacks. The agency also proposed limits on existing gas power plants, but now says it will delay that work probably until after the November election. The energy industry has warned rules that are too strict could lead to power disruptions. Environmental groups called the change disappointing, said the country can't meet its climate goals without stricter emission limits on existing gas power plants. Jeff Brady, NPR News. There are blizzard warnings posted today for parts of eastern California and for eastern Nevada. Feet of snow are predicted for California through the weekend. Forecasters say wind gusts in Nevada could come close to hurricane strength. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Democrats in New York adopted a new congressional map on Wednesday using their supermajorities in the state legislature to draw district lines that would improve their chances of winning the U.S. House majority in November, but not drastically. They do shift some areas of our listening areas, District New York's 19. How could the proposed adjustments to the congressional districts by lawmakers affect the political dynamics in these highly contested areas like Long Island and the Hudson Valley? Jason Dole spoke to Philip Pantoso of the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau on the local edition. The 16th congressional district in Westchester County marginally changed in a way that could give an assist to Jamal Bowman, um, who is... um, Facing a primary challenge from Westchester County Executive George Latimer. In the 17th district, those lines are not changed at all. And that was a priority for Republicans who want to give Mike Lawler, first term representative, a fighting chance there. He's become kind of a fast rising star in the conservative movement. He's he's been a big uh, presence on cable news. And I think they see him as someone who can hold on to a seat, even in a purple or even in a blue state, because he's he's not a MAGA Republican. He's 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 fairly moderate as far as Republicans go. And so they'll be happy that uh, that that district wasn't touched. Um, The 18th and 19th districts um, also didn't change in these Democrat maps. They they had changed a little bit in the independent redistricting commission maps, but those ended up staying, um, staying as they as those were drawn. So, not too many changes. The the upshot basically is that Democrats um, should be favored in 18 of the 26 congressional districts. Um, currently, Democrats hold 16 of New York's 26 seats after Tom Suozzi was sworn in. Uh, earlier this month in the special election in Long Island. I believe six of the districts are safe for Republicans, and then that leaves really just two that are considered toss-ups. I just want to revisit something you said in there that I didn't fully realize. I just kind of want to reiterate it and make sure that I'm understanding this right, that there were changes to New York's 18th, 19th district, but those changes weren't because of the Democrat-led New York legislature's tweaks that they put through in recent days. Those changes were already in the bipartisan group, the IRC's suggestions. Is, is that the case? Um, let, let, me, let me correct that slightly. So the 18th didn't change. The, the 19th um, would – there is a slight, slight tweak to the 19th, if I'm understanding this, if I'm looking at the two maps correctly. Um, that one would – the 19th would make the district look a little bit more like the current district uh, that, that's you know represented by Mark Molinaro. Um, he won that obviously in 2022, 20, uh, um, but Biden won 52% of the vote in that district in 2020. So that's that's considered I think one of the toss-up districts. Um, 
in in 18, currently represented by Pat Ryan, the the Democrats didn't make any changes to that. So it's still it still leans Democrat. And I think it's considered, um, if not quite safe for Democrats, um, I think that they are more likely to win than not. But they, you know, they could have maybe tried to make some adjustment there because all of, you know, a lot of these upstate districts, especially the ones that don't incorporate any major population centers, they're really sprawling districts. And there's all kinds of ways that you can change the lines, basically, to try to make them a little more rural, a little less rural. That's what happened um, initially with New York 19. After what it means for our listening area, um, you know, I think we're going to have races that, um, at least in terms of partisan competitiveness, will feel fairly similar to what we had a couple of years ago. Um, the big difference now is that in each of these races, you have incumbents running. Um, and uh, at least in the case of Mike Lawler and Pat Ryan, the incumbents in NY17 and 18, they are fairly popular within their party. Molinaro, I think, is a little bit more vulnerable, but he also has um, you know, a district that, again, is considered a toss-up. And he's facing a challenge from a person he already he already beat. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's going to, you know, I think we're going to have competitive races again. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised to see the partisan makeup of these districts stay the same. I also wouldn't be surprised to see any of them flip. Um, I think the one I would be most surprised probably um, would be 18, because, again, that's a fairly safe Democratic district. Pat Ryan is broadly popular, though he has faced some criticism for um, for refusing to call for a ceasefire uh, in the war in in Gaza. And the challenger there, Alison Esposito, um, she's fairly new to the district. She just moved to Orange County, uh, I think, last year. Um, and doesn't seem to be gaining too much traction in her campaign just yet. Yeah, and we're we're talking about this in largely political terms because there are political implications, but I think, you know, the way that I asked you that question, I also uh, myself was forgetting to bring up some of the practical implications that do impact politics, but that is um, folks that are living in these districts should just double check what this means for where they vote. And that's part of how and why, you know, we cover this here on Radio Catskill, uh, especially in Ulster County, uh, in towns like, uh, you know, Marbletown, Rosendale, Saugerties, Woodstock, Schwangunk, town of Ulster, you know, it's good for people to to double check because, again, this was a redistricting process. And even though most districts weren't touched, uh, districts in our neck of the woods were. Um, So as we, you know, continue to to wrap this up, uh, any reactions to this news that that you're following? Yeah, um, you know, the the leaders from both parties are, I think, kind of saying what you would expect, you know, the Democrats are sort of tooting their own horn, saying that they engaged in a fair process here. And, you know, it's worth noting that um, the state constitution gives the, the created the independent redistricting commission, and they're the ones who are charged with drawing these maps. It also reserves the right for the legislature to amend those maps, but only by no more than a 2% 2% alteration of the population in a given district. That's the so-called 2% rule. Democrats say that they, they, you know, painted with, with inside or painted inside those lines and that these are fair maps. And the Republicans anyway, I think are broadly satisfied because they know that um, the Democrats could have been more aggressive with their gerrymander. Um, on Wednesday afternoon, after the legislature's amended, amended maps were released, the state GOP chairman, Ed Cox, said that there is no need for further litigation because these new lines are not materially different than the 2022 congressional boundaries that were previously created by the IRC. Well, I think one line of that, that sort of echoes or points to one line of feedback I have heard from some uh, elected Republicans, which is that why 
Did the Democratic legislature do this? They barely made any changes. Um, seems like they probably could have just gone with the IRC maps. But given that these were just very minorly tweaked, it sounds like uh, they're not going to face a court challenge and that these will be the maps that will be in place uh, until 2030. Yeah, that's that. That was my next question: Is would you know? Uh, do you think uh, Republicans would sue or take this to court, uh, which is what happened in twenty twenty two? It doesn't sound like it at this point. Um, there's been some reporting that um, you know that there are big Republican donors who are sort of itching to take this back to court. They can't do it themselves. They they have to. Um, you know, they would have to, a Republican would have to file the lawsuit to overturn the new district lines. Um, I think the New York Times reported that they're, that the billionaire who helped uh, finance the party's successful 2022 suit was considering going back to court, but none of the state GOP representatives or party chair, party chairman who I quoted earlier or any other party leaders seem to be um, sort of spoiling for that fight right now. Yeah, I heard that, uh, you know, John Faso, who, who helped with that initial suit, has already said that, you know, not going to do that this time. Yeah. I mean, basically, I think that, uh, like, the whole point of of them trying to go to court would be to try to um, overturn what they see as aggressively gerrymandered maps and ultimately pick up more seats for Republicans. Um, you know, Right now, uh, Republicans have 10 seats. They are safe in six, and then there are two swing seats. So they would probably pick up at most one other seat if, you know, if they went through a whole court battle. Um, so, you know, it's probably not worth the, the, the millions of dollars of legal fees and, and having to potentially reschedule primaries. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to go over this with us one more time. Hopefully, the last time, at least for a while. Yeah, yeah. I hope, uh, I hope I'm not back on talking about this again next week because it will have meant that something went terribly wrong. Jason Dole speaking to uh, Philip Pantuso, who is the editor of the Hudson Valley uh, section of the Times Union. You can find more at timesunion.com. It's Friday, and that means Dan Hoost is here from Sullivan County Government to let us know the latest from Monticello. We'll talk to him right after this break. This is Radio Chatskill. Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl. And the fastest-growing group is under 19. Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County. Whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. The mixtape's all about eclectic music, compiled with love, like an old-school mixtape. I'm Jason Tuga, and every Friday night, it's my aim to bring you something special, a unique mix of music you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You can count on hearing a diverse range of artists, eras, genres, and vibes. The Mixtape, an hour of music assembled by me just for you. Friday night. Friday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every Friday, we're joined by the Communications Director for Sullivan County Government. That's Mr. Dan Hoost, who joins us today. Hello. That's me. That's well, you. What good timing that I'm here. Fresh from <laughs> New York City and your Google AI conference. We'll get to that in a little bit. Yes. But I'm glad. Thanks for coming back, first of all. Um, <laughs> I think Google wanted to keep me down I know. There, you know? I saw I, your I, social I could, media posts. It looked like you were having oh, a grand old I time. I was having a good time. Google knows how to uh, treat their guests. They really do. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's talk about some other updates. There was no meeting of the legislature yesterday uh, it was a leap day uh so maybe that's why they let past that but there's another it was not scheduled uh there's another one coming up next thursday but some other things going on uh the head start sullivan county head start uh what's the latest there a reminder that sullivan county head start uh, out of the blue kind of uh, closed up shop uh last month and there's been uh, an interim agency from the federal government coming in uh how's that going i have some happy news to share with that they are onboarding staff 
I think a majority of the Head Start staff is going to be returning from what I hear. And when I say they, I should specify it's CDI, which is, I think, Community Development Institute, it stands for. But basically, they're the ones that the federal government contracts with when uh, they need somebody to swoop in and at least temporarily run a Head Start that is having difficulty, which, of course, our local Head Start had major difficulty. So they, this week, started bringing staff in to onboard them. I think they had finished um, uh, doing interviews with original staff. And like I said, the majority, I think, of the original staff are going to be returning. When I say staff, I mean like teachers and support staff. Leadership will obviously be different because CDI is going to run this. There is still a Head Start board that is an operation. However, they gave up their contract to run the program for the federal government. So at this point, that board is meeting to reorganize and perhaps down the road uh, reapply to have the contract. But that could or could not happen. That could be a ways away for the time being. And my understanding is for as long as needed, CDI will operate. Just don't have a date yet, the big one that everyone wants to know, as to when the kids can come back. Yeah. And as soon as I know that, we will be sharing that with the public. Well, they were saying hopefully within a month, um, mm-hmm. and to hear that they're hiring staff seems like they might be on pace and here. And onboarding them, too. Yeah. They're, they're, they're getting them all set so they understand how CDI does what it does. But, of course, since these are many of them veteran Head Start staff, I think that process could happen pretty quickly. So I'm hopeful that before we get to April, we're going to be talking about this program restarting. And just to be clear, the the CDI group, the temporary uh, agency that comes in in a case like this, they're not going to be the full-time operator, but they will operate until the new nonprofit for this Head Start gets organized. Yes. Yeah. For the the moment, they are the full-time operator, and they will continue doing it independently of the local Head Start. They answer just to the federal government. So it will be something where we'll we'll learn as we go as to what they're doing, and hopefully they will be uh, out there telling the community step-by-step step as they move along. But it's not locally operated. There will, of course, be local staff. But this company is here to at least make sure that everything's running correctly, if not fix whatever might have gone wrong. And then Head Start or any other eligible organization can apply down the road for the next contract. I don't know when that opportunity is coming. Now, county leaders attended the New York uh, State Association of Counties annual conference in Albany this week. Uh, what happened there? Yeah. If you hear anyone use the name NYSAC, that's what that is. NYSAC, New York State Association of Counties. It represents all the counties of New York State, I believe including in New York City. Uh, could be wrong about that, but it's in the upper 50, if not the full 62-county range. And Tim's going to find this I'm out. I'm going to look. You? Yes. <laughs> um, and they have a number of meetings every year. This is one of the big ones that they have. It was up in Albany this past week. We had some of our senior staff, like our county manager, our deputy county manager, our county treasurer, other folks go up to that event. But also, we had more than half of our legislators up there, including some brand new legislators. And I think it's a great opportunity for them to learn more about how counties interact with the state Mm -hmm. on a statewide level. Because, listen, legislators and county leaders have plenty to focus on here locally. (laughs) I'd be the first to to acknowledge that. But they also need to understand how to interact with Albany, which is a very complex beast, state government. And NISAC is all about that. Here's how we can train you. Here's how we can advocate for you. They have committees and groups that meet. Our legislator, Louis Alvarez, is on NYSAC's board of directors, a very prestigious position for him. And there are several of our county leadership who are on committees of NYSAC who meet during these uh, gatherings. So it's a really valuable use of their time. It's not something where they go up and party and gamble and drink. <laughs> and, no, this is this is a work sure? session. I am absolutely certain <laughs> of it. I see their faces when they come back. They're tired. <laughs> they do represent the five counties within New York City. Okay, they do. So all 62. Yes. Yeah. And they are a very, very influential organization. So it behooves us to stay active. Well, what kinds of things do they they, they get from this? Uh, and how does it 
influence or impact uh, Sullivan County? It's all sorts of different seminars that they have. The the latest financial and tax information at the state level, what the state budget's going to be looking like, um, how to uh, handle uh, new uh, things with homeland security and emergency situations. Uh, for legislators, it's uh, a chance maybe to meet some state officials that they wouldn't have met otherwise because they never get out of Albany and our legislators can't just travel up to Albany on a whim. Uh, so it's it's a valuable situation all around. And I'm really pleased to say, and I think this may be the first time it's being put out there, but I believe their fall conference will be here in Sullivan County. Oh, great. Okay. So we're going to have uh, many hundreds of people from across the state coming to Sullivan County to conduct their fall conference. We'll find out what they really do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if, you're just, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Dan Hoos, who's the communications director from Sullivan County Government, who joins us every Friday. Uh, you mentioned Louis Alvarez is um, on the the board of the New York Association of Counties, mm-hmm. and you have another uh, member of uh, county government who's on a, another board. Uh, John Little, Health and Human Services Commissioner, is on the board of the New York State Public Welfare Alliance. And what is it that they do, and, and what's his role there? Yeah, I, I told him he's a glutton for punishment because he's already got so many volunteer and uh, professional things that he does. I'm like, where are you finding the time to do this? But <laughs> This is another very important statewide board he feels very strongly about being a part of. It's called the New York Public Welfare Association, NYPWA. I had never really heard of this, I'm ashamed to admit, but they've been around for a long time, and they are an advocacy organization. It consists of six executive committee members, a representative from New York City Social Services, a representative from each of the eight upstate judicial districts. That's interesting how they uh, choose members from the judicial districts. Mm. Uh, and then uh, two at-large members nominated directly by the board president. Um, they have to be board members, which he is now a member of this, have to be voted in by a vote of all 58 social services district commissioners across the state. John is, for example, a social service district commissioner. And there are 58 of them. 57 others uh, voted on this. He didn't tell me if it was unanimous or not, but I'll assume so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, if you're listening, John, I love you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, no, we're very proud of him on this because this gives him even more of a voice at the statewide level. Uh, he is uh, approved to serve as the third judicial district representative. So it's not just Sullivan County he's representing. It's Albany, Columbia, Green, Rensselaer, Schoharie, and Ulster counties. For uh, it's a, a year long term, twenty twenty four. Um, he said he was very honored, honored and humbled. I asked him for you know what 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 can I say on your behalf? He was honored and humbled to find out that his peers were nominating him to serve on the board. From the time I started this work in twenty twenty, he said, I have relied on the advice and experience of my fellow commissioners to help me be a better servant of the citizens of Sullivan County and a better leader for my social services team. Uh, this welfare association was founded in 1869 as the first public welfare association in the U.S., uh, and it represents, on its own, 58 local service uh, social services districts in the state, uh, a huge advocate for the most vulnerable people amongst us. And now John is representing a very large and influential swath of that area, including right where the state capital is, Albany County. And here it is, our own guy in Sullivan County, mm-hmm. a resident of Liberty, um, and a really, as you can tell just by listening to this, a really hard worker. We're very proud and excited and want to congratulate him on that prestigious nomination and vote. This wasn't an appointment. He was voted in. Oh, congratulations to John. Um, yesterday, we had on uh, the folks from Wayne County to talk about their upcoming uh, primary, which is April 23rd. The New York presidential primary is April 2nd, mm-hmm. a little sooner. I want to remind folks again about uh, information on early voting, absentee ballots, polling places. Yeah, we have all this information, and I'm not going to go through it all uh, here. I want people to take a look at it at SullivanNY.us slash department slash elections, or just search for Board of Elections or Sullivan County, or ask our new AI chatbot, Sage, to help you <laughs> with that. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, we have not only early voting dates, which start in late March uh, and go for over a week, but we also have sample ballots on there, which I find very useful to look at because it shows you what the ballot's going to actually look like when you vote, whether you vote early, whether you vote in person. 
uh, because all our polling areas will be open on primary day itself. Um, but our early voting locations will be Sullivan County Government Center in Monticello and our public health building, what I call the Olmstead, the Gladys Olmstead building on Community Lane in Liberty. It's part of our social services complex. All right. And a reminder uh, with election news, Super Tuesday is uh, on Tuesday. Uh, we will bring you uh, NPR's live coverage of that on Tuesday, starting at eight. And on Thursday, March 7th, uh, President Biden will deliver the State of the Union address to the joint session of Congress. We'll bring you NPR's live anchored special coverage of the address and the Republican response that will start uh, at nine on Thursday Uh at, sorry, at eight on Thursday. Uh, and again, uh, stay with us for all of the election coverage locally and nationally here on Radio Catskill. We'll take a break. And when we come back more with Dan Hoost from Sullivan County Government, it's Friday. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org, and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. This is Thane Peterson, host of Living Jazz. Saturday at noon, I bring you two hours of the very best of the current jazz scene, along with a little bit of classic jazz thrown into the mix. It's wonderful music that will warm your heart and soothe your soul. Join me for Living Jazz, noon to two Saturday, only on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. And uh, correcting myself, actually, the special coverage of the President's uh, State of the Union address on Thursday begins at 9, hosted by Steve Inskeep of NPR, who will be joined from the U.S. Capitol by members of the NPR politics team. I was uh, confusing the Tuesday and Thursday start times. So on Thursday, you will get to hear the full uh, edition of Ramble Tamble with John Gordon from 7 to 9 and then that special coverage. Dan Hoost is with us now. He's from Sullivan County Government. Uh, joins us every Friday. Dan, I wish just if there was some sort of maybe AI thing that could help me with my memory. Any recommendations? Uh, they're talking about those neural implants now, <laughs> then Elon Musk. Uh, oh, yeah, no, so, oh, no. uh, yep. I bring this up, of course, because Dan, who's, um, as we were talking about a little earlier, uh, was in New York City this week for a panel uh, at Google uh, about their mm-hmm. AI uh, intelligence, their, their artificial intelligence and the applications. Um, for those who may not know, Sullivan County was an early adopter of the Google AI uh, service, the chatbot that's yes. on the website. And you were invited down to to talk about this experience, one of, if not one of or the first in the country. Yeah, we're still trying to find out exactly from Google what, what that was. But um, Did you Google we, it? We, uh, yeah, right. Now, <laughs> it's not quite there. If, if they don't know, nobody knows, right? right? But if we're not number one, we're very close to it. We certainly are the first for a municipality of our size nationally and i wouldn't be surprised globally as well so they invited you down to talk about the experience mm -hmm. yes because myself and our it department specifically our director of applications and support andrew mccabe it was just a two-man team it was the two of us that worked with google's subcontractor a company called quantify to put this together uh and i think we were all amazed that it could be done in just 10 weeks uh before we debuted it and so Google Quantify, and of course us, we're very proud of that effort. And they are, Google's working very hard to um, sell their technology. It's a competitive world out there to uh, other public sector agencies, municipalities, nonprofits, schools, small businesses. And I think they like touting us because we were small. We didn't have a huge budget. We certainly did not have a huge staff to devote to this. And we didn't have a lot of time to devote to it as well. So they asked me if I was interested in speaking at the panel. And at first, I'm like, really little fish in really big pond. <laughs> uh, but then I'm always telling people, step out of your comfort zone. So I took my own advice, went down there, ended up having a great time, got to sit on a panel with several other folks uh, from uh, state government, also from NYU. Uh, and we talked about 
how AI is transforming what we do. And we just have a little part of it. It's our chat bot. It's a little box in the lower right-hand corner. When you're on our website, it looks like a, like a comic book dialogue box. Click on that. You can ask her questions in whatever natural language way you want to. And she'll answer it. I call her she because we called her Sage. Uh, and uh, it's really it. I get it. But um, we want people not to feel restricted like, oh, I'm just talking to a computer. We want it well, to this, be as natural as the, possible. The point of, of adding this was not – you weren't replacing a human. This no. was to enhance the user experience so that you could provide more service. Uh-huh. And also complement our staff, support them. Our staff does not want to have to be constantly answering the phone, telling people where they're located and what their hours are. They're excited and they're paid to handle the more complicated, complex questions. Maybe not every day are they excited about it, but <laughs> let me tell you, if you're constantly all day long just saying we're located at this uh, address and these are our hours, it's it's demoralizing. <laughs> so Sage takes that away and handles all of that. We saw a 62% decrease after debuting our original chatbot with this in our phone call volume in the county clerk's office, which was one of our test cases. We said, well, if that's possible, then we need to continue with this technology. And Google worked to hit a price point that was good for us. Quantify worked with me to make sure that I wasn't spending hours and hours and hours trying to train this AI chatbot. And we debuted her quietly in December. We're going to get a little louder about her as we're moving along here because our next thing is focusing on really enhancing her accuracy. This is not some hard-coded computer that gives you the same answer every single time. She learns. She's supposed to figure out all the different ways people can ask questions and all the different ways that she may need to answer those questions. Well, so it's exciting technology. Well, and exciting that they invited you down to talk. And I guess mm-hmm. when I think of Google headquarters, I'm thinking like it's futuristic and space. Were there jetpacks? <laughs> I was looking for that. No, <laughs> I think we were most impressed that they have sleeping nooks for people who want to take naps while oh. they're working. I'm like, really? You can, allow that? Can we get those? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great, though. I, I, I love Google Maps. I use that for GPS and everything, and they have an interactive Google Map as you walk up the ramp into – it's an old loading dock, a pier, Pier 57 in Hudson Valley, and they've turned that ramp into this uh, uh, image of downtown New York City on Google Maps, and I just was like – Oh, I'm stepping on Chelsea. I'm stepping on the Empire State Building. I'm stepping here. Uh, it's simple things that entertain yeah. me. <laughs> well, congratulations. I mean, it's nice to be recognized like that at a national level uh, and, and for our region. For our region. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we go, a couple of other things to get to Office of the Aging with some free equipment for folks. Yeah, I don't know how many people know about this. And I even learned some new things this morning when I just asked for an update on this. But you could get loan outs of things like canes, walkers, wheelchairs. I think they call rollators, I think is what they call these things as well, um, that are loaned out for an indefinite period of time uh, at county cost. You don't have to pay for anything. You just have to be a county resident, and you have to tell us you need it. I don't think we put you through anything uh, difficult or rigorous. I don't even know that we need a doctor's note. You just come into our office for the aging and say, hey, I I need something, and I can't afford uh, to buy or rent something like this. I also found out this morning – that we also give out things like uh, Depends, the sanitary uh, underwear, uh, that if people need it. I didn't know we did that. I think that's a wonderful service because uh, you know your dignity out in public is very important no matter what socioeconomic status you're at. But if you're on the really poor side of things, you may not even be able to afford that basic thing that can preserve your dignity. We can give that to you. All you need to do is come into our office or get in touch with our office for the aging, and we will make it as simple and as easy as possible to let you continue living your life on your terms and independently. These are wonderful people, and if we can't help you directly there, we can put you in touch with people who can. It's worth it. If you're wondering what to do, come talk to us. And on Sunday, there's an event at the Cook Society we want to mention. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Our Cook Society every week, uh, Aldo and Carol Troiani, of course, who we know very well yes. here, work very hard to put something together at our county museum. Sometimes it's the Frederick Cook Society, which celebrates the Hortonville-born uh, North Pole Explorer. Sometimes it's just for the county museum because Carol also uh, works for the county. Uh, sometimes it involves her and Aldo's band, Little Sparrow. 
Uh, actually, most of the time it does. And this Sunday, March 3rd at 2 p.m., they are going to present an exhibition of Mount Denali photos. Denali, I guess is how you say it. I believe that's in Alaska. This was a controversial thing of whether Fred Frederick Cook, 100 years ago, actually summited there or not based on his photographs. Well, there are experts who disagree on that, but of course we have the Cook Society and we're going to side with the experts that say, yes, he did. And she's got some, um, she spoke by phone with an expert who uh, uh, had somebody recreate his route and says, yeah, he did summit that, I think it's up in the tens of thousands of feet uh, above sea level. And it's really interesting because you're going to get to see photos that nobody else has. We have the original negatives or plate glass, uh, whatever it is that we have in our archives, and we will display those there along with all the other interesting things you can find at the County Museum in Hurleyville. And you can learn more. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, again, the warming centers are open. Uh, we oh, yep. see some uh, wintry mix tonight, so that's uh, important to mention as well. Yep, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., both at the St. John's Episcopal Church in Monticello and the United Methodist Church on North Main in Liberty. Dan Hoost, Communications Director from Sullivan County Government. Thanks for spending your Friday morning with us. My pleasure. All right. We'll see you next week. Take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, one of the artists at the Catskill Art Space exhibit that's opening tomorrow, culture reporter Valerie Manzi, has more after a break. This is Radio Chatskill. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kondabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash. I'd pay $6 a finger. I'm Peter Sagal. You need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. with Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Catskill Artspace has an exhibit of new work from Hovey Brock, Dan- Daniela Dooling, and Valerie Haggerty opening tomorrow. Uh, earlier this week, we spoke to Hovey Brock and Daniela Dooling. Valerie Haggerty makes paintings, sculptures, and installations that explore issues of memory, place, and history. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi spoke to her. Good morning, Valerie, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Good morning, Valerie. Happy to be here with another Valerie. Yes, we're two Valeries. Okay, so Valerie, you have an opening coming up this Saturday, March 2nd, at CAS in Livingston Manor. Tell us about what you'll be showing in your exhibit. So I'll be showing seven works. One is an older installation from 2006 called Fireplace her, uh, called Overseas Fireplace with Harpoons. And it's a Federalist fireplace with a painting by Frederick Church, um, the icebergs hanging over the mantle. And it's pierced with three harpoons. And it's all constructed of foam core and paper mache. And another um, older piece from 2008 called Return to the Catskills. And it looks like a painting by Asher B. Durand called The Catskills that's been turning back into a tree. And along with those two uh, previous works, I have five new works um, playing with the Vanita genre. Um, the what genre? Uh, Vanita, which is in art history, uh, still life paintings that would often refer to mortality so they might have a skull, a candle burning down, some flowers. Maybe one of the flowers is wilting, much like your flowers. Um, I just saw in the office had maybe one flower wilting. And, um, I, the, the older pieces were thinking about climate change and the environment. And then the newer pieces are taking a turn inward to think more about, um, the death of nature and also my own mortality. And what are the harpoons about over the fireplace? I saw that one online. So for that piece, I was thinking of placing the viewer in the position of being in a Western affluent interior. And they're looking out at the iceberg painting, thinking about the painting as a window that you look out at another place. But the way of looking is quite aggressive, um, thinking about exploration and conquest and uh, uh, colonial um, exploration and um, so the as if the person inside is throwing the harpoons 
outward to the icebergs. But in the meantime, they're piercing the fireplace. And there is a harpoon that hits the iceberg dead center that looks like a bullseye. And at that point, there's a hole in the painting where it looks like silt and sand and um, the ocean is coming through. Thinking about environmental degradation um, from this like very aggressive way of approaching other territories. And there, there's also a seagull on the mantle as if the sea brought the seagull inside. Wow, that there's a lot packed in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, you know, it's it's very experiential. So um, you may not necessarily um, go through all these layers of meaning, but uh, hopefully there's an experience for you when you get in the show since it's three dimensional and life size. Okay, and will you have any uh, sculptures in this show? The one freestanding sculpture is the Return to the Catskills. Um, and it looks like a tree where the top half is still a painting that is um, pecked with holes. And you'll see at the very top of the gold frame, there's a woodpecker. So woodpeckers um, faced extinction or are facing extinction from uh, industrialization and logging, deforestation. So it's almost as if this painting of the Catskills was left outside and was returning back to nature. And then the woodpecker can use it again as an environment. Or maybe the woodpecker was fooled by the realism in the painting and thought it was a real tree. Or maybe the woodpecker is getting revenge on the painting. Um, a lot of these early American paintings are talked about in terms of manifest destiny, that it was the white settlers white right to expand westward. And that, um, along with that becomes the deforestation. So maybe the woodpecker is getting revenge on the, the painting itself. Wow, you put a lot of intellectual thought and analysis into your work. Sometimes the idea comes first as a visual, and then I go backwards thinking about different meanings. Um, sometimes it's not all planned ahead of time. I like to look through art history books and go to museums, and I and an idea might just hit me of a visual that I think will be interesting, and then I do more research and um, parse out more layers that could be in the content. And you're also a writer. Yes, I've um, been really interested in creative writing all my life, but I haven't had time to put towards that. But um, when I turned 50, I thought, I always thought I'd be a writer later in life. And then I turned 50 and thought maybe I should get started. <laughs> so I've been doing creative writing, um, some magical realist uh, short stories and some memoir short stories. And I have a few published online. It's similar to my work in art. It might be called surrealism, um, where it starts out uh, plausible and starts taking a turn to the uh, more magical surrealist side. And is this your first show up here in the Catskills? Yes, it is. And I'm really happy to be showing at CAS. Um, I'm up here part-time with my partner in Livingston Manor. And we go to cast for all the openings, and I'm really uh, thrilled to be showing there. And I'm also thrilled to be on Radio Catskill because we listen to WJFF, and I'm excited to be on the radio. Oh, well, we're excited to have you, and <laughs> we're very excited that we have cast at our doorstep, too, and get to interview these wonderful performers and artists that cast uh, brings to our neighborhood. Yeah, and they cast us three shows at the same time. So I'm also showing with Javi Brock and Daniela Dooling, who are also uh, extremely interesting artists. And we um, were grouped together because we all uh, play around with some themes to do with the environment, landscape, climate change. And you'll also be having a symposium at the closing. Yes, the closing day. Um, is also Earth Day. So we're each going to do a quick, uh, I think, like 10, 15 minute presentation with visuals of some of our past work uh, to talk about how it relates to the Earth and Earth Day.
Well, there's a lot to look forward to. And where can folks find more information about you and your work? If people are looking for more information, I have a website. That's my name, ValerieHegarty.com. I'm also on Instagram as Valerie J. Hegarty. And you can also Google me to see images. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Valerie, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Valerie. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Two Valeries at once. This is Radio Chatskill and more in arts. Uh, the Delaware and Hudson Canvas newspaper was created in 2004 to give the public an easy reference for uh, guiding the arts and entertainment in the area and to give artists and performers a venue that reaches everyone interested in the arts. The March issue of Canvas is out and I spoke to Barry Plaxen, the publisher and managing editor of Canvas, about some of the March culture highlights in the area. Here's Barry. Well, we're going to start um, in Ellenville because uh, we made an era, which is the first time we ever did anything like that in 20 years. Oh, my goodness. The um, Duo Solitude, a violin and viola duet, Anastasia Salberg, who runs the Music Institute of Sullivan and Ulster, and she's a violist. And she and David Fiedler, the violinist, are doing a concert in the... Monticello Library, the Crawford Library. E.B. Crawford Library. E.B. Crawford Library. And that is on March 4th at 6.30 p.m. this coming Monday. Right. This coming Monday. We had said it was in Ellenville. We just assumed it was Ellenville because it was Anastasia. Well, because Mises usually does stuff in Ellenville, but they're doing this one in Monticello at the library. Right, and it's very rare for that to happen. And my error, I don't know how I did that. What do we have next? We're going now to another page. another double I'm turning another classic. Yeah, we have Classical. a wonderful concert, um, which is going to include music by Sullivan County's Lee Hoyby, a wonderful um, world-renowned composer. And every time somebody does his um, music, I'm really really impressed. I've never heard what Andrew is going to play. Andrew Trombley is going to play a piece of his, and they're doing it at um, March seventeenth, two o'clock at Krauss Recital Hall in uh, Narrowsburg. That's the DVAA. And then on Monday, March 18th, at 6 o'clock, in St. John's Episcopal Church in Monticello, the home of Nesson Cultural Arts. It's a talk and playing music on the evolution of the double bass. Very interesting uh, music is going to be played, including a, a piece by Lee Oibe. And Andrew Trombley is a is a renowned double bassist. Yes, he uh, who, plays with orchestras, and he goes all over the world, including the New York Philharmonic, Metropolitan uh, Opera, right. and the Mozley Mozart Festival Orchestra. Right. And this is part of the Sullivan County Chamber Orchestra, which he has uh, founded and and co-founded with his uh, wife, who's a violinist. So and they just had a little baby. Oh, I wonder what musical instrument the baby will take. Well, up. we don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there's an art window display in. Calicoon. Yeah, the 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 library uh, has a, a new art windows, and they're having a like a reception. Delaware at the Delaware window reveal is the new window art at the Delaware Free Branch Library in Calicoon. So they're right there on the Delaware, and this project has been in the works since last year. Finally, come together, and they're going to debut that actually today at four. And then the winter music series in Lake Huntington. What's going on Saturday night? Well, nights? the Delaware, Delaware Valley Opera Center has a, a new, uh, well, not new. It's about two years old. A new um, event loca- location in the building called the Arts Nest. And they're doing a winter music series. They bring in a ma- major, well-known people, mostly folk music, you know, singer-songwriter types of people. Um, and Hiroyo Tsukamoto, uh, is going to be playing March 2 at 6. These are all at 6 o'clock. And you can dine there, uh, finger type foods, not dinners. Yeah. So that's Saturday nights in March at the Arts Every Saturday. in Lake Huntington. The Mindy Ross Gallery has spirit songs, visual voices of LGBTQIA plus artists. Uh, that is running through April 26th. Uh, there's an opening reception Saturday from 2 to 4, which features Joy Zalata on classical guitar. The gallery is at Kaplan Hall at SUNY Orange in Newburgh. And they have a, it's a group show, and they're wonderful, wonderful artists. They're, they're major artists in the area. Uh, more information at cultural at SUNYOrange.edu. Yes, and there's plenty of parking. They have a garage underneath the building. 
Good to know. Uh, let's move on to uh, a memorial to the former president of the Northeast Watercolor Society. What yes, can you tell the us about uh, SUNY Orange in Middletown has, has um, opened in February the Northeast Watercolor Society yearly group show. And just prior to that, the ex-president, he was ill, so he became ex-president, passed away just prior to that. And they have a beautiful show with many uh, Sullivan and Orange County watercolor artists. That was Richard Price from Hancock, who passed away in January. I had a, a passion for watercolor painting and uh, also renowned for his skill in depicting local rural scenes. There's a lovely memorial article about him in this edition of Canvas. We don't do obituaries. These are these are memories yeah. and sometimes even um, humorous anecdotes, hum- humorous remembrances. Well, you have remembrances from folks uh, that knew him. Different folks are quoted here in this memorial piece. Yes. Also, Poetry Weekend coming up in Middletown in March. Uh, two different days. The ladies are on March 8th at 7 p.m., and they are called Damned Poets. D A M D. The first letters of each of their first names Deborah, Ann, Mary, and Diane. Right. <laughs> and then you have the well known Pulitzer nominated J.R. Solange and uh, Stephen Kramer. They'll be reading their poetry. And then on March 11th, at noon at SUNY Orange in Middletown, Stephen Kramer is giving a master class on a free attendance master class on poetry. Well, that's great. It's in honor of uh, International Women's Day for that first one, March 8th, and then the whole weekend, poetry at SUNY Orange in Middletown. Also, a music and art concert in Narrowsburg. Yeah, very interesting. A, a gentleman named Seth, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, Seth Fergolitz-Golzia, Fergolzia, is an anti-folk avant-rock artist who performs wildly imaginative improvised paintings with feedback and sound loops. It's called live loop painting. So he's it's a live abstract painting and it's kind of improvised through sound and in the moment. Yeah. So this sounds like a fun... Very colorful. The pictures are very colorful. And very unique and unusual. That's happening yeah. on March 9th at 2 at Kraus Hall. Uh, in Narrowsburg. Barry, um, always bringing us... Uh, there's so much more, by the yes, way. Yes, I just always... That was like just a few highlights. Wonderful art exhibitions, Catskill Art Space, and uh, DVAA, et cetera, and the galleries. And they're, they're in there, too. Canvas, you guys do such a great job of, of covering everything that's going on in our area throughout the Hudson Valley, really. If, you know, there's that double page... Calendar, calendar that has everything listed there in the middle of it and there's just so much going on you guys do a great job of keeping us uh yeah one of my favorite pictures is in there the yarn slingers which are storytellers and they'll yeah. be telling their stories in calicoon as usual barry plaxon from canvas thank you thank so, you so much. much thank you <laughs> always a delight to have barry and there's more information at dhcanvas.com that's all for this edition of radio chat skill Monday, we're talking trout. We'll learn more about this year's Two-Headed Trout Dinner and the Two-Headed Trout Weekend. That's Monday at 10. Have a good weekend. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type wjffradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill.
It's Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. On Point is coming up next, and it's Friday. Science Friday starts at 2. Today's weather, a good deal of sunshine, high in the mid-40s, clouds moving in, and then uh, be aware of some snow likely later on overnight, some mixed winter precipitation and snowfall around an inch, and then in the morning, possibility of some freezing rain. That should change to rain for the rest of the day. High Saturday, 41. Uh, Periods of rain early uh, Saturday night, but then cloudy overnight, low 39. And then for Sunday, it looks like a mild day, 57 for the high, partly cloudy, winds light and variable, a mainly cloudy Sunday, low around 40, and then staying around 50, 52 on Monday. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. 